You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Metro Detroit. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Stop, drop, and pass the rolls. We are a month away from Turkey Day, one of the best holidays of the year. Kids, I've got one for you, and you're going to want to share this one with Uncle Jimmy at Thanksgiving dinner. Ready? What instrument does a turkey play? The drumsticks. For us at Kensington, Thanksgiving marks a yearly tradition of delivering Thanksgiving baskets to families in our school partners community. It's our 26th year, can you believe it? Moving out together as a community to provide thousands of Thanksgiving meals. Not to date myself, but it's been around longer than I've been alive. Really? Wow. Of course, we are mixing things up this year to ensure the health and safety of volunteers and the families receiving the baskets. Instead of the traditional turkey and all the fixings, we are providing non-perishable items along with a gift card to Meyer, which allows families to purchase and cook a traditional Thanksgiving meal without the added stress of the cost. There are still two ways you can participate. You can donate to fund baskets, which are $50 each, and you can sign up to deliver a basket on Saturday, November 21st. The delivery process will look a little different with COVID-19 protocols, but we will still have the opportunity to talk to the families who are receiving this special gift. It's not always about the meal. It's about the conversations and relationships that happen because of it. Go to kensingtonchurch.org slash thanksgiving to be a part of this tradition. Now, I'm handing off to Craig McGlashan to give us a scoop on our new series. So one of the most incredible stories in the Bible is also one of the most important stories to the unfolding promises of God. It's a story that frankly gets more paper real estate than any other story in the Bible. It covers several pages and chapters in multiple years. It's a story of a man named Joseph. Starting in November and then every week through the month of November, we're gonna be covering a variety of moments in Joseph's life where Joseph encountered things that while they're different than what we encounter, the end result is the same. Moments where it feels like life just delivers a punch out of nowhere. And what Joseph teaches us throughout his life is that his ability to withstand whatever punch came at him and hit him in the face was that he believed in the strength and the power of something stronger than any hit. And it's what he concludes with near the end of his life when he says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. So join us starting November 1st and throughout the entire month of November as we look at the life of Joseph and how to take a hit. You guys are awfully noisy back there. Come on, Craig. Okay, I will. Please pray for me. I hope everything worked out okay for you, Craig, but my money is on the other guy. No offense. So, a Technicolor Dreamcoat, MMA fighting, and Kensington. Sounds like some pretty interesting ingredients for an awesome series. Today, we are wrapping up on our series, United, looking at one of the most well-known stories from the Bible. It's about having a desire to love others and risking our own lives to help a complete stranger. I'll let you guess what story it is. Thank you for joining us, and now let's open our mind and hearts for what God has for us today. Together and feel alright 
That is the perfect song to bump us into this last week of the United Series. One love, one heart. Today we're going to be talking about what does it look like to love our neighbor and who is our neighbor. And I'm excited about the message and this particular passage. I was supposed to be with you this week. I wish I was, but I'm on a 14-day quarantine. A little over a week ago, I had breakfast with a new friend. And it was a wonderful time together. But a couple days after that... Uh, he started to get really sick, and then two days after that, he tested positive for COVID. His wife tested positive as well, not their child, so that's beautiful, but uh, please be praying for this couple at this time. Of course, I needed to get tested as well, which I did, and I did find out yesterday that I was negative, but the medical community, my doctor, said he'd really want me to, to stick to the 14-day quarantine, so that's what I'm going to do. So I wish I could be there with you. And you know, this whole time of the coronavirus, even early on, I think we were one of the very first churches to close our doors and go virtual because we really wanted to care for the most vulnerable people in our community, and we wanted to be conservative about that. And I know there's all kinds of thoughts uh, regarding approaches to church and what's happening right now, certainly masks, but I'm grateful that we are uh, wearing masks when we meet, that we are caring for the most vulnerable. Because Matthew 25 says, when we care for the most vulnerable in our community, it's as if we are caring for Jesus himself. And we really wanted to do that. We wanted to care for our elderly community, uh, those that have pre-existing conditions that put them at risk, and then also our, our children and our young families. And so thank you so much uh, for doing that. But today we are going to talk about what does it look like to really love. In fact, one of the ways we can love our community is doing what we're doing now, wearing masks, caring for each other. But what does it look like to love our community? What does it look like to love our neighbor? And Jalen Seawright is going to bring you the message today. I'm super excited about that because I've heard Jalen teach this passage, and he does a fantastic job. I'm so excited for all of you to hear and learn from him as God speaks through him. Before we do that, we're going to sing a song to set our hearts. So the arts team is going to come out and they're going to lead us in a song that really presses into how God really wants us to love the world. Take this in.
My favorite part is where it says, storms may come, but when we call your name, yes. all things change. It's a beautiful part. Can you see that, Audrey? Storms may come, but when we call your name. Say storms may but when we call your name, all things change. I think somebody needs to hear that. Sing it again. Storms may. Last time everybody see storms may come, but when we call your name, all these change. Now I think no one has to argue about the idea that right now 
there are storms happening in our society. There are things taking place that are polarizing us, pulling us apart, dividing us, keeping us from being able to unify with one another. But one thing I can count on, as Lachelle reminds us, is at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. At the name of Jesus, all things change. That's good news. I don't know about anybody else today. So when I hear that line in this song, and I thank Ashley for reminding me of this song, and I think about what's happening in our world, I know that simply at the name of Jesus, all things are possible. No matter what. No matter what. We're going to look at this a little further today. But before we get into where we're going, please pray with me. God, I thank you. God, I thank you that at your name, all things are possible. I thank you that at the mention of your name, things change. God, I thank you that no matter what happens, you are in control. God, I thank you. Your scripture says that you order our steps. Lord, I thank you that you see us. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you're for us. Lord, I pray that you give us peace. Lord, I pray that you direct our hearts, that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, and you prepare our hearts to hear from you and you alone today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus because we have hope in Jesus. And it's in his holy and matchless name we pray we said together, amen. Well, give it up for the team one more time. You know, we've been in this, in this series, this is the last week of a series called United, where we've really looked at this idea of in the midst of civil discourse or in the midst of all the things that are polarizing us in this season, how can we love each other better? How can we do it? And so Danny and Andrew have both brought messages in this three-part series. And so today we're going to look at what does it truly mean to love God and to love your neighbor. You know, in culture today, there are a lot of phrases that we say and that we have that directly relate right back to Scripture. So for example, when you hear the phrase, a wolf in sheep's clothing, it refers right back to a biblical example. How many of you have heard someone called a doubting Thomas, right? So Thomas was a character in the Bible who doubted Jesus. And then also there's one that is very common and we call it or we call some people this a good Samaritan. There are hospitals that are named the Good Samaritan Hospital. There are companies that donate cars that call the name of their company is the Good Samaritan. When we see a story on the news of someone doing something very kind and intentional, they're usually referred to as a Good Samaritan. Y'all are with me. Cool. But that story is actually found in the book of Luke chapter 10. And today that's where we're going to sit for a while. We're going to look at this story. It's a parable of Jesus where he really dives in and he begins to teach us what it actually means to love God and to love our neighbor. So it was the it was summertime, July of 2016, and I had been married for a little less than a year. And uh, at this time, just to give you a context about my life, I was uh, full-time in college, and I was also working at a local restaurant serving tables. So basically what that means is that I had no money. <laughs> and uh, although I had no money and we were flat broke, we were high on love, though. We, nothing could go wrong. We were married less than a year. So on this particular day... In July, I had the day off, and so my wife did not. So in her rushing to get to work, she left her lunch sitting on the counter. So she calls me and says, hey, Jalen, left my lunch sitting on the counter. Can you bring it to me at my job? So I said, hey, for sure, no problem. I grab my shoes, grab my keys, grab her lunch, head out the door. Light bulb goes off on the top of my head, and I said, you know what? 
I did a pretty good job last night serving tables and made a little bit of extra money. Dave Ramsey would have said I definitely didn't make extra money. It needed to go towards the growing debt, but I was 23 and Dave Ramsey just didn't want me to be great, okay? So anyways, I pushed past that and I said, you know what? I am going to treat my wife to a good lunch rather than this sad and pitiful looking sack lunch she packed. So of course, the first thought that came to my mind was McDonald's. I was like, I'm going to treat her real nice today with this McDonald's. So I go to get in my car. So you got to understand a little something about my car. It was a 2000 Pontiac Grand Am. It was real special. And it was special because the air conditioning was broken. And it wasn't broken like a normal air conditioning would be broken. It was broken the wrong way. So the blower was broken. And no matter which way I turned the knob, it blasted heat only full blast. And so it didn't matter if it was 30 degrees below zero or 117 degrees in July, I had heat. <laughs> so quite naturally, everywhere I went, I tried to find the streets with the highest speed limit so I could let all the windows down and get the air in. So me, my 2000 Pontiac Grand Am Hoopty is what I called it. We're riding down the street, going to McDonald's, pulling up to my wife's job. I walk in, take her, her McChicken and small fry, because that's what I could afford, and uh, walk it in real proud and give it to her. Walk out of there with my chest and my head held high. I'm getting back on the road. I go to get on the highway. And I think nothing could go wrong at this point. I started this day off pretty good. All of a sudden, I look in my rear view mirror, and there is a classic Harley Davidson chopper right up on me. I'm a pretty fast driver. The Lord's still working on me, okay? And, and so it's not usually likely that somebody would be really on my tail. So I hit the turn signal, and I go to get over. Immediately, I noticed that this Harley-Davidson speeds up to match speeds with me. And uh, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to look over. I'm just trying to stay straight and mind my own business. And then all of a sudden, like, I signal to get off of the exit ramp because my exit's coming up. And this motorcycle speeds up, revs its engine, cuts me off, gets to the shoulder to block me from taking my exit. I said, what did I do to this dude? Like, maybe I missed him or something like that. Maybe I made a mistake, cut him off. I'm not sure what angered him. So all of a sudden, I start getting a little bit nervous because I'm like, what is he trying to do? Am I going to miss my exit? So I quickly hit the accelerator, speed up, take my exit. And all of a sudden, I look right behind me in the rear view mirror, and I see that he is coming up right behind me. So he pulls up right beside me, and so my windows are down, heat's blowing, just so y'all remember that, and, and he's within an arm's length of me, and so as he's within an arm's length of me, he starts yelling some obscene things at me. He starts calling me the N-word. He tells me I should take my monkey explicitive back to where I came from and all this stuff. And I'm looking, so I'm not really too uh, surprised by what he is saying uh, as like I had, you know, experienced a little bit of that before. But what was most surprising was clinging to his back was a young boy no more than 10 years old laughing and smiling at every word that came out of this man's mouth. It immediately moved me to think about what is happening in our world. What could happen that creates tensions and creates feelings this deep? And to see a child clinging to the back of someone saying such horrific things was disturbing <laughs> to say the least. But it got me thinking a lot about the journey that God calls us to because I believe that the journey that God calls us on is like a road. It's like a highway of sorts. But it's a highway that's tough. It's got many winding turns, got lots of high heights and deep depths. It's one that has many exits where if you, if you want to give up, there's lots of options just to take the next 
exit. But this road, I believe, is called love. It's not to be confused with words like kind or nice, but rather the word that makes those things genuine. I believe that is the road that Jesus is calling each of us to walk on. And I think the story of the Good Samaritan, it's a great place to start diving into this topic. So in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, we have an account. This is where Jesus begins this parable, where an expert of the law or a lawyer confronts Jesus, and he has one goal, and that is to trip Jesus up to catch him up and try to make him stumble a bit. And he does this by asking Jesus questions. And I just think that in a lot of ways, if you look at scripture, that's just a bad idea to ask Jesus a question because he's just gonna follow it up with another question for you. And so he asks Jesus, he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies with the question, well, Basically, Jesus knows he's an expert in the law. He's the lawyer. So he says, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer replies with the Shema. And in Jewish culture, the Shema is a prayer that is usually memorized and committed to memory by most Jewish people. It's something that is recited twice a day in the morning and evening. And still to this day, it is recited. So he replies with this and he says, It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, correct, do this and you shall live. So like I referenced the Shema, the Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four through five. The Shema states, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. But the lawyer also adds a second thing uh, in addition to the Shema. And we find this law in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, so Jesus takes the Shema uh, which is a love, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an idea and a prayer that's centered around loving, and then he takes another law that's found in Leviticus that is centered around loving and compounds them together to come up with this profound idea to love God and to love people. To love God and to love your neighbor is the greatest command. So this expert of the law was not done yet. He said, I still got one more. I could trip Jesus up. He replies, okay, I get that. Love God, love your neighbor. So who is my neighbor? And this is where Jesus begins his amazing storytelling. In verse 30, the story starts where it says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. Then Jesus replies, go and do likewise. You see, let's get a little context as to where this story takes place. So this is on a journey on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Like the road I told you all before, this road literally was not easy. 
It was winding and difficult. It's about a 16-mile stretch, and it takes a healthy person nine hours to walk it. It's so tough because Jerusalem sits a little above 2,700 feet above sea level. And then Jericho sits about 846 feet below sea level. If you do the math, that's a difference of about 3,000 feet. So the person walking on this journey would be going downhill about a half mile by the time they end their journey. Now, you may be saying that going downhill isn't all that bad. It'd be worse if you were going uphill. But this wasn't a straight shot downhill. This was a winding road that had many depths. There's a part of it, the Kidron Valley, which is actually a canyon, where you go deep down into the valley, it's dry and desolate. And then you come up out of that valley and you reach the Mount of Olives, which is plentiful. And the Mount of Olives is the place, a very important place in scripture, especially in the story of Jesus, because at the foot of the Mount of Olives was the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed for the cup to pass and where he was arrested. You see, this was not just the normal kind of road. Because of the severity of this road, many people didn't occupy this road. The only people that really lived along this road may have been Roman soldiers who were operating checkpoints, shepherds who were watching their sheep uh, or their flock, innkeepers, and then most prevalent would have been bandits, robbers, bad people that seek to do bad things to the people traveling on this road. And so as we look at this story and we look at this at this road, we first come across this character, the second character in the story, which is the priest. Now, priest is very, very important. Not only did they understand where the experts of the law, they also were responsible for performing all the duties that took place in all of the services of the temples. And because of this, now you could not just become a priest. You had to be born into the priesthood. And the the biggest rule that you had to keep as a priest was to remain undefiled, to remain clean, to uphold and keep all of the Jewish laws and precepts. So much so that before the priest was even allowed to perform any kind of service, they had to be sure and be tested that they were clean and undefiled. The second, the third character that we see is the Levite. Like the priest, likely working alongside the priest as well, but not quite as important as a priest. He still was responsible for a lot of the things that take place within the temple, such as worship services, such as cleaning and maintaining, planning things, things like I would call him a worship arts director. But so we see this, this Levite, and he also passes on this side of the road. Then we get the Samaritan. And so the thing about the Samaritan is, is not only at the time of this account, not only would they be a marginalized and hated people by the Jewish people, they were literally the enemy of the Jewish people. So this would have been very strange for Jesus to make a Samaritan a hero of a story, as even the thought of a Samaritan would have upset a Jewish person. The Jewish people considered Samaritans half-breeds they, because their, their lineage and their descent comes from them, Jewish people mixing with the Syrians and other Gentiles to create a different kind of race. They weren't considered human. They were considered more closely related to dogs by the Jewish people. So think of the most derogatory term you could call someone, and that's what it would be like to refer to someone as a Samaritan in this time. And so we see this account happens, and Jesus literally makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. But as we see that the priest and the Levite pass by this man that's laying on the side of the road, there's something we got to understand. We may say like, well, why did the people that should be upholding these values of loving God and loving your neighbor, why would they just pass by on the side of the road? They're wrong. The catch is the priest and the Levite were actually right. The reason why they were right is because if they ended up being defiled in any way, 
then it would disqualify them from being able to do the things that they were called to do. So one of the, one, a big thing that could defile someone is if you come in contact with a corpse. So this man laying on the side of the road, not knowing if he's dead or alive, the priest would obviously make the decision to say, I can't go near that because it could defile me and not allow me to perform the duties that I am called to do. But this is where Jesus gets interesting and twists the story because he takes these two love commandments and puts them together and says, loving your neighbor is like loving me. And the expert of the law knew exactly what he's saying and he had to reply, well, the one who did the right thing was the one who showed mercy. You see, the Samaritan loved selflessly sacrificially and lavishly. We see that he loved selflessly in the way that he cares for the Jewish man that's on the side of the road. So in September of 2017, my wife and I became parents. We had a daughter, Carrington K. Rose Seawright, and what a pistol she is. I think I got a picture up here of my two girls. Yeah, oh, ain't they cute? I'll tell you, but woo, they are pistols. But anyways, Carrington, my oldest, as she started developing her vocabulary pretty well, one of the main words that really came up more often than I'd like was mine. And so it didn't matter what it was. She could have got up on the table, grabbed my car keys, and if I tried to take them back from her, mine! I could be trying to clean up the living room and put her toys back in place. No, mine. And all of a sudden, I, I start fussing at her and say, hey, we've got to learn to share. This stuff isn't yours. Then I realized that I was becoming my father, and I talked to her like, I paid for that. That's not yours. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, my goodness. I need to watch it. But anyways, I, as I really sat back and started looking at how my daughter was operating, I realized that as an adult, I'm not much different. I might not say mine like she does, but I certainly do live life a lot close-handed trying to protect the things that I have. There are certain things that I have that I don't necessarily want touched or messed with. There are certain things that I have that I'm willing to give to certain people, but then there are the things that I have that they're just kind of mine. I don't necessarily want anybody messing with them. But we see that in this story of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan was not like Carrington, was not like Carrington at all. See, our world is plagued with this selfishness, right? I think everything teaches us, around us kind of teaches us to, to protect and look after what we have. But this Samaritan gave of everything that he had at the time and asked the question, how can I serve my neighbor with what I've been given? The Samaritan was able to look past his own selfish ambition and be able to serve a greater purpose by fulfilling the need of his brother. The second type of love that the Samaritan exemplified was sacrificial love. How many of y'all like Chick-fil-A? Oh my goodness, I don't know. Are we even Christians? <laughs> How many of y'all love Chick-fil-A? No, I'm telling you, okay, I, I love Chick-fil-A. I wasn't convinced at first, but now every time I go, every time I step foot in that restaurant, I immediately think that this is the closest representation of what heaven is going to be like I remember, I always get the same thing when I go to. I, I always get the same thing. I, I get a four-piece chicken tender, and I get waffle fries and a lemonade. And so uh, on my first visit there, my friend, my best friend Trace had told me, hey, uh, we got to go to this restaurant called Chick-fil-A. And I was like, everybody keeps hyping this up, man. It's just chicken. Like, I could fry some up at home that's just as good, I'm sure. And he's like, nah, man, it, it's something special about Chick-fil-A. 
So we go to Chick-fil-A. I walk into the door. Immediately, the server greets me, asks me, how am I doing? And then says, how can I serve you today? And I didn't know where I was. I was like, I've never had anybody at a restaurant, a fast food restaurant, ask me how they can serve me. So I look up at the menu and I say, okay, I'll take the four-piece chicken tender and waffle fries. Oh, oh, and can I get a lemonade with that? And as soon as I ask that, she replies with, I'd be delighted to get that for you. Well, I turned around and looked at me. So she was talking to me. And when I confirmed that she was talking to me, I replied, well, thank you. And before I could get thank you out my mouth, she said, my pleasure. And I said, okay, all right, this is, this is what Jesus is like right here. I get my food within like 30 seconds. And then when I get there, she's handing me my tray. She asked me, uh, would you like any dipping sauce for your chicken tenders? And I said, well, what do you have? And she replies, well, we have honey mustard, we have Polynesian, and my favorite, the Chick-fil-A sauce. And would you like to try some? And I said, well, if you're suggesting the Chick-fil-A sauce, I might as well try it. Then this is where she took my breath away. She says, how many? How many sauces do I want? When I go to McDonald's and get a 10-piece chicken nugget, they want to charge me 25 cents for just one more sauce. They'd rather watch me choke on the 10 chicken nuggets that I have than giving me another sweet and sour sauce. So I'm a little nervous about this proposition that she gives me. So I say to her, I said, well, I just kind of throw a number out there. I said, four? And she says, how about six? I said, oh, my Lord. I said, this right here, this is heaven. This is what Jesus is like. Chick-fil-A is sacrificial. They are sacrificial. That's all we need to know is go to Chick-fil-A and everything will be all right. That's the message of today. But just not on Sunday because they're not open, okay? But we see this starting at verse 33 where it says, But a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. In that time, oil and wine were extremely expensive. The, the, the Samaritan would have needed these things for his journey. That's why he brought them along. But he poured them and gave them out to this neighbor, this stranger that he did not even know. The Samaritan was sacrificial. The other thing we forget is the Samaritan was on a journey himself. And we know that by stopping to help this man on the side of the road, he set himself back at least a day. Because in verse 35, it says, after he, it says, and the next day, that's when he went and talked to the innkeeper. But this Samaritan was not only sacrificial, he was lavish in the way that he loved on this person, this neighbor that he did not know. He wasn't frugal about it. We see that in this story, there's a part in it where it says that he gave the innkeeper two denarii. Now, what we know about that is from the story of where Jesus fed the 5,000, one denarii was about a day's wage. We also know from historical account that the cost of renting a room at, the, at an inn for about one night was about the cost of one thirty-second of a denarii. If you do the math, this means that the Samaritan gave the innkeeper enough money for this man to stay at the inn for at least two months. But he doesn't stop there because then the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, says, all right, I'm going to leave down, but if he needs to stay longer, I'm going to pay you whatever he goes over when I come back. That's a lavish kind of love. So the thing is, is Jesus sets up this story and he shows this way that this Samaritan loved this neighbor perfectly. One thing we have to understand is, is that in our journey, we'll never be able to love God and love our neighbor perfectly. But that doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't try to fulfill and love God and love our neighbor with all 
we've got. So you're saying, well, how do we do this? Jalen, I, I hear the story. How do we do this? Well, there's a couple steps. First is we have to open our eyes. Some of us live life with our eyes closed. We only are concerned about the things that directly affect us. We're not quite sure who lives over there or who lives over there because we're just kind of concerned with what's around us, what's in our circle that directly affects and influences us. We have to open our eyes. If we want to love our neighbor, we got to see our neighbor. It's as simple as that. Let's notice, let's open our eyes and see our neighbor. The second thing is we've got to cross the street. We've got to cross the road. When you see your neighbor, you've got to take the step to go to them, to engage with them, to know them so that you can love them. And the last step is we have to welcome the outsider. And that's basically make the person who is least like you feel welcomed when they are around you. One of the values that we have here at the Troy campus for our staff and for our volunteers is that when we see people in the lobby who may be new or not necessarily know where they're going, may be different than us, we make it our priority to engage with them, to seek them out. This is how we welcome the outsider. It's very easy to get around who you like and who you want to be around and things like that and ignore the people who are outside of the sphere that directly affects you. This is how we do it. I want to close our time together with a story. When I was uh, about eighth grade, uh, my parents, we moved. We moved from a predominantly black community to a predominantly white community. And so in that move, I changed schools and all that kind of stuff. But I was in middle school when we moved, and then I got to high school, and it was a little rough in engaging with, you know, in relationship in such a different kind of environment. I wasn't used to that environment, and they weren't used to me. I was one of six, of about six other African Americans in a school of 1,200. And so it was, it was different, and, and a lot of the time, kids just simply kind of repeat what they hear talked about around the dinner table. So there was lots of strange things flying in my time of high school especially. But like any other high schooler, right, me and my friends were concerned about two things, who we were crushing on and how were we going to ask them to the next dance. That was about it. So for me, I had a crush on this young lady, and she happened to be white. And so my friends encouraged me, says, Jalen, why don't you go and uh, ask her to the homecoming dance? So, I mean, I had cold feet a little bit, but then finally I mustered up enough courage to ask her. And she said, yes. And I was like, ooh, cool. I want to be big man on campus now. Well, after that, we start planning. So it's like homecoming's in about a month and uh, so I'm like, hey, what color is your dress going to be? Because I want to make sure I'm flying and my, my tie matches you and all this other kind of stuff. And, and she replies with, oh, I haven't got my dress yet. I'm not quite sure. Then uh, a few weeks go by. The homecoming's coming up in a couple of weeks now. And I ask again, I said, so what color are we wearing to, uh, to, to homecoming? And she says, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. And Kind of things like that. And so finally, the week of homecoming comes up, and I still don't know. So I said, you know what? It's cool. I'm just going to get a black tie, white shirt. We'll make it work. It'll match with anything. So uh, all of a sudden, I also knew that we were going to get together for pictures at our home. So it was a group of friends of us that were going. So I asked my other friends, I said, hey, can you send me the address so I could be there for pictures? So I arrived with my black tie, white shirt, black suit, and and uh, she's there, and she's kind of distant from me a little bit. And so, like, we aren't getting any pictures together or anything like that, but we're in a friend group, so it's all right. We take pictures outside, and then we're invited inside for a few snacks and a few extra pictures before we leave for the dance. As I get ready to enter the home, her father stops me at the door. And he says to me, hey, he leads with, 
I, I promise you, I'm, I'm not racist. I just need to protect my home. And so I didn't fully understand what was happening. And so I was just 14. And so uh, I was like, oh, okay, no problem, sir. So I, I, I sit outside, but my buddy waits out with me, but I was too embarrassed to kind of tell him what happened because I was still trying to understand it myself. And so he sits out there with me and it's just body keeps asking, well, why aren't you going in? Why aren't you? I said, no, I just want to sit out here. So uh, we end up going to homecoming. I ride with my buddy and we get there and, you know, my night's not going that great at that time. And so finally, a few days after homecoming, I tell my friend, I said, uh, hey, man, this is what happened. This is what our father said to me. And he immediately got upset. He went home and told his mother. In January, there was another dance coming up called the Winterfest Dance. I had kind of, you know, buried the, the way I felt about the, the instance and the situation that happened with homecoming. But my friend, Adam, who happened to be white and his parents did not forget about what happened to me. Because when Winterfest came, they planned a whole big celebration. And they invited me into their home, had a spread of all kinds of food. They rented a car for us to go in and that took us to the homecoming dance. They made me feel so welcome. It pretty much redeemed anything that I felt before. You see, what they showed me is that they could love their neighbor. And it didn't stop there because his mother pulls me aside and says, I know what happened. My son told me, that is not okay. We love you. We welcome you. You are invited to our home anytime. And then she grabs her son and pulls him over and says, and if this one doesn't treat you right, just let me know. That is what this story is all about. It's about loving God and loving our neighbor. In a time where we are so polarized right now, you look at whether it's politics or whether it's relationships between the black and white community, whether it's conversations around immigration, whatever it is, we are polarized and divided. But I want to remind us of something, that it does not matter what makes us oppose each other. We still have a duty to do two things, to love God and to love our neighbor. We've got a duty to do those two things. And I want to remind is this, for all of us, for all of those, no matter where we stand, if you stand on the far right and you think that the people on the far left are what's gonna destroy our country, I want to remind you that no matter what happens, you can love God and you can love people. For the people who are on the far left that think that the people on the far right are the ones that are going to destroy our country and everything we've built, I want to remind you of something. Regardless of what happens, you can love God and you can love people. You can love your neighbor. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about politics. I believe he cares deeply what happens within our world. But what is true is, is that nothing can compare to the power and the might of God. No political system, no person in leadership can interfere with the power of God. He reigns, he will always reign, he will rule forever. Scripture promises us that. And if we choose to just follow his greatest command, to love God and to love our neighbor, then guess what? Things will fall into place. Things will be okay. Can we be a community that does that? Can we be a community that loves our neighbor? Even if they don't think like us, even if they oppose us, love them anyway. Can we be a community that loves any way? Can we do that? I believe we can. We're gonna sing a song together that was written by Ben West and uh, Danny Cox and it's called Search Me. Oh God, and the team's gonna come out. And this song literally sets it up pretty well that I think the first step that we have to do is say, Lord, search my heart. 
root out anything that is unlike you, anything that is evil within me, or make me more like you. It's a line that says, lead me in your way everlasting. Then we're gonna sing a song called Build My Life, where you say, Lord, we know things are chaotic right now, but just remind me that I need to put my trust in you because you are my hope and my firm foundation. That is the good news. So I wanna invite you all, all who are able to stand as we sing these songs together.
that is our decree today. If we leave here just asking Jesus to do that, we'll be all right. We will. We will be okay. Love God and love your neighbor.
If you don't remember anything else today, go out and realize that no matter what circumstances happen, no matter what takes place, you still have the ability to love God and love your neighbor. I, I guess I got excited up here and forgot to take the offering. So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, hopefully Danny doesn't get me about that. But anyways, uh, so there are many ways, different ways to give. You can text to the number 77977. You can give online. That's how Kiana and I do it. Uh, but there's, there's also buckets in the back that you could drop your offering off in those on your way out. Really, just the way that our community has been generous in this season, especially in COVID, has been just amazing. And so we really appreciate all of you who are here, all of you all who give to the mission of this place that God has called us to. But like I said, uh, there is, I do want to remind you all that there is a Facebook and YouTube live event taking place tonight. It's the last one to close out this series. Danny Cox, Craig Mays, and a few others will be on really diving to, into scripture to ask the question, what does the Bible say about justice? What does the Bible say about love and mercy? So catch us there at 7 p.m., either YouTube or Facebook, either one. Well, you all take care. Have a good rest of your Sunday. Don't forget Chick-fil-A isn't open, but you can go tomorrow. Take care. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.